Good afternoon. It's Friday the 15th of December 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, we've got Ben Rubin. Welcome to the programme, Ben. And by video link, we've got uh, Debbie Evans. Uh, now we are going to uh, begin with uh, Ukraine and funding for Ukraine. Uh, and first of all, the news is that uh, Viktor Orban uh, here meeting with uh, uh, Charles Michel, Emmanuel Macron, Olaf Schultz, and of course, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, has decided that uh, they, Hungary does not want to uh, fund Ukraine. But but just to uh, so that we understand, uh, the lead into this was a decision about whether Ukraine would be invited to begin the uh, process of joining the European Union. Uh, and Hungary indeed was not particularly interested in that either. So let's just have a look at what uh, Viktor Orban said. Now this is in uh, Hungarian, but there are subtitles. We'll explain a little uh, more afterwards uh, for those that are just listening. Lassan 8 órája gyúrjuk itt egymás Brüsszelben a miniszterelnöki csúcs találkozón. Nagy vitát folytatunk Ukrajna-Európai Uniós tagságáról. Magyarország álláspontja világos. Ukrajna nem felkészült arra, hogy megkezdjük vele a tárgyalásokat az uniós tagságról. Teljesen értelmetlen, irracionális és helytelen döntés ilyen körülmények között megkezdeni Ukrajnával a tárgyalásokat, és Magyarország nem is módosítja az álláspontját. Ellenben 26 másik ország ragaszkodott ahhoz, hogy ez a döntés megszülessen. Ezért Magyarország úgy döntött, hogy ha 26-an így döntenek, menjenek a maguk útján. Magyarország ebben a rossz döntésben nem kíván osztozni, és ezért Magyarország a döntéstől a mai napon távol maradt. A tárgyások folytatódnak a költségvetés módosításával. So uh, making it very clear that Hungary didn't want to be involved in the decision uh, for Ukraine to become a member of the European Union, uh, but he was prepared to let uh, the rest of the EU countries go ahead and do that if that's what they wanted. So let's have a look at what uh, Charles Michel uh, said about this, president of the uh, European Parliament, of course. Good evening, everyone. This is a historic moment, and it shows the, the credibility of the European Union, the strength of the European Union. The decision is made. Uh, we open negotiations with uh, Ukraine and with Moldova. Uh, we grant status to uh, Georgia uh, and uh, with Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, we intend, we will uh, uh, open negotiations and a report will be issued in March. Uh, and based on that, we'll make a decision in March. This is extremely important. We want to support Ukraine. It's a very powerful political signal. It's a very, very powerful political uh, decision. Uh, and today and tonight, I, I, I think uh, to the people of um, Ukraine, we are on their side and this uh, decision made by the uh, member states uh, is extremely important for the credibility of the European Union. We, we, we worked a lot to prepare this European um, uh, Council. It was important that no member state would oppose, uh, the, would oppose the, the decision. And uh, that's why we were in a position to uh, make this announcement uh, tonight. We continue to work because uh, we are still working on the multiannual framework. This is a difficult debate. Uh, and I'm confident that uh, in the hours to come, we will manage to make a decision to be uh, united on this uh, topic. We want to support Ukraine with small financial uh, assistance, point one. But we also want to take into account the priorities of the European Union and to adapt uh, our multiannual framework. I should have said European Council, of course, not uh, 
European Parliament. So uh, anyway, uh, putting a very brave face on that, Ben, in an attempt to sort of persuade everybody that uh, uh, there's unanimity there. Uh, when it came to the the debate it's over the money itself, we'll come on to that in a second. Let's just put this up first. Uh, EU leaders approve Ukraine accession talks uh, bypassing Orban, uh, said Alex Soros. So the next thing was uh, Viktor Orban tweeted this out. Uh, summary of the night shift. Uh, so Hungary uh, issued a veto on the extra money to Ukraine uh, and also a veto for the uh, MMF uh, framework. Uh, sorry, the MMF review. We will come back to the issue next year uh, after proper preparation is what he is saying. So Hungary decided uh, not to veto Ukraine joining the EU, but to veto the money side of it. And the MMF, by the way, that's on screen at the moment, that refers to the multi-annual financial framework. Um, so that, of course, it's not just an EU situation because in the United States, it's the same kind of thing. So here's Chuck Schumer. Uh, so much hangs on our success, he said. We know the world is watching. This is because the Senate is de deciding on whether to uh, issue more money to Ukraine as well. Uh, so they want uh, to pass a supplemental aid package worth $50 billion uh, of new security, so-called, uh, to Ukraine as it fights Russia, as they say, uh, plus uh, $14 billion for Israel as well. Uh, and because this is not going through, the Senate has decided to not go on holiday uh, today, as they plan to do, but they're going to, in fact, come back on Monday to try to do a deal on this. Uh, so that's money currently stalled in the U.S. Senate as well. Uh, but the question is, once this money does get approved, if it gets approved eventually, uh, what is it going to do? Because increasingly we're seeing comments like this. Uh, this is from Vista Outdoor uh, saying that due to world events, our suppliers have notified us of the unprecedented demand and unexpected global shortage of gunpowder. Uh, and thus they've increased our prices substantially. Now, of course, it's for uh, the sporting market mainly, but this must apply all the way through the supply chain uh, as well. So perhaps the uh, $50 billion that the US is trying to get isn't going to go quite so far. But let's come to the UK and its response. Uh, and let's have a look at uh, or listen to Alicia Cairns, who's the chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, uh, what she was saying about this. Um, you know, Ukraine does need our support. The good news, if you want to find any good news in the situation, is that the EU already has funding in place in its current budget for Ukraine. This is all about grants and loans for 2024 to 27. Uh, the UK already has been giving a lot of support to Ukraine. It's obviously just announced a massive maritime investment. And the US is still steadfast at the moment. But this is my big question that I've been asking to my counterparts in DC and around the world. What are you doing now to give Ukraine what it needs to survive and to win now? We keep giving them just enough to survive the next three months, next six months. No business would operate on that model. So why do we expect Ukraine, which is defending all of Europe, to work on that same model? Give them enough to win and give them enough to win now. So it's just business. Let's uh, put this on screen. It's just business. It's not personal. Uh, and uh, well, so that's a message to Vladimir Putin. Uh, it's pathetic, isn't it? It is, yeah. It's, it, 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 it's quite remarkable, isn't it? And to position Ukraine as essentially the European front line, I think, is really interesting. I mean, the, the, this idea that everything is becoming more closely integrated and actually we're, we're, we're all in this fight together. If, uh, if yeah. you go along with uh, the, the, um, the rhetoric that's being put forward here. In fact, we saw a similar 
message coming from uh, Poland recently where Donald Tusk has just been uh, confirmed as the new prime minister and he wants the West's full mobilisation for Ukraine. His return here, according to the Kiev Post, is seen as crucial for restoring Poland's standing in the EU. Uh, they've been in the Viktor Orban naughty step, I think, for the past few years, and they need to provide a significant voice amid the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky himself has been in the US over the past week. He did a, a big interview with Fox News where he talked about uh, this was his advice to people questioning funding for Ukraine. Don't travel the world each day. Travel to the front line. Ask soldiers what they need. Don't build roads for today. Spend all your money to weapons, to drones. And don't cry. We have only one enemy. This is Putin. Yeah. Pay up, people. There's no, there's no choice. Um, and in the context of all of this, it's, it's been quite interesting, actually, after so many weeks of Israel, uh, to remember that there is another significant conflict ongoing that we're being asked to pay for here. Um, uh, it's, it's good to have a little look back and, and see over the past sort of 12, 18 months where all this has come from and how Ukraine has been operating. Let's have a look. Ukraine has uh, biological research facilities which, in fact, we are now quite concerned Russian troops, Russian forces may be seeking to uh, gain control of. So we are working with the Ukrainians on how they can prevent any of those research materials from falling into the hands of uh, Russian forces should they approach. Yeah, so that's Victoria Newland from the U.S. State Department, essentially admitting to the existence of uh, biological research facilities, whether those could also be bioweapons facilities, I think is open to interpretation. Um, uh, that was essentially given by Putin as one of the main reasons for the escalation of conflicts at the start of the war. Uh, it turns out, and that was actually from March 2022, so in the, in the opening weeks of the conflict, it was confirmed that those facilities did exist. Uh, Putin also talked about the denazification of Ukraine, and uh, we've known for quite some time now, and actually this was widely reported by Western, uh, Western media before the war, uh, that Ukraine is, uh, it has a Nazi problem. Uh, uh, the Azov battalion uh, has um, spread through Ukrainian military and into its government. It is extremely influential across the country. Uh, uh, Zelensky himself um, has been uh, 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 provoking um, uh, the, the situation. He's actually called for preemptive action against Russia by NATO. Uh, there's something that uh, quite remarkable statements from him again back in, in 2022. Um, he also uh, 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 lied about a Ukrainian missile being launched into Poland. If you remember, again, from the, the end of last year, uh, a, a missile uh, landed in Poland uh, and it was blamed on the Russians. But it turned out that it came from Ukrainian territory. Um, we should also remember his relationship with Denmark, the artistic director of Balenciaga. Uh, Denmark was uh, selected to be the head of the United 24 fundraising platform, which was set up to raise money for the, uh, to support the war against Russia and to rebuild Ukraine. Uh, and Balenciaga, as I'm sure you will remember, was caught up in some 
uh, remarkable controversies last year because of the use of uh, essentially child abuse imagery in its campaigns on a number of different occasions. It was forced to issue a formal apology. They were wanted to address the controversies surrounding their recent ad campaigns. They strongly condemned child abuse. Of course, it was never our intent to include it in our narrative. This is someone who is a, a close uh, colleague and, 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 and personal friend of, uh, of Zelensky. Um, and one of the images uh, included in the campaigns included the cover of this book, uh, The Cremaster Cycle, uh, which is uh, 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 produced by Matthew Barney, the artist, which is uh, full of Masonic symbolism. And actually, as you can see here, it has a Ukraine flag on its cover. Right. So these are the people that we're dealing with. These are the people that we're sending our money to. Uh, let's also not forget the relationship that uh, Palantir uh, have with the Ukrainian military. Here is uh, Alex Karp, CEO of Palantir, in, in a meeting with Zelensky and some of his senior team. Um, and in the light of recent developments in the US, the open, uh, opening of impeachment proceedings against Joe Biden, uh, we should also remind ourselves of, of this video of Biden talking about his personal activities in Ukraine. Well, I, I, I was, not I, I, but it just happened to be, that was the assignment I got. I, I, I got all the good ones. Uh, and uh, so I got Ukraine. And uh, um, I remember going over convincing our team, our <coughs> others to convincing us that we should be providing for loan guarantees. And I went over, right, I guess the 12th, 13th time to Kiev and, uh, and I was going, supposed to announce that there was another billion dollar loan guarantee. And I had gotten a commitment from Poroshenko and from uh, Yatsenyuk that they would take action against the state prosecutor, and they didn't. So they said they had, they were walking out to press conference, said, no, nah. I said, I'm not going to, we're not going to give you the billion dollars. They said, you have no authority. You're not the president. The president said, I said, call him. <laughs> I said, I'm telling you, you're not getting the billion dollars. I said, you're not getting the billion. I'm going to be leaving here. And I think it was, what, six hours? I looked, I said, I'm leaving in six hours. If the prosecutor's not fired, you're not getting the money. Oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> got fired. Pre-Zelensky, but uh, I think that sums up quite nicely what the political environment is like in that country. Absolutely. OK, thank you for that, Ben. Uh, Debbie, let's welcome you to the program and let's move on to uh, uh, COVID. Uh, well, actually, it is COVID, but it's a completely different subject uh, regarding COVID. And what I want to do, actually, is ask everybody, does charity start at home? I thought charity did start at home. But I want to scrape the tip of a very big iceberg that I believe is affecting every single one of us watching, now listening, uh, in plain sight, right in front of our eyes. And it's, how good are you? How good a person are you? And would you be willing to sacrifice everything, your life, your privacy, your data, literally your life, for other people, for the common interest, for the planet, for humanity, for the earth? And this is where I'm going to introduce you to 
altruism and effective altruism. But before that, let me take you back to 2020. And I found this article in CBC News. Now, this is talking about rule breakers and the people who are the reasons that other people can't have nice things. And when you go into the article, you meet a political scientist called Dr. Dina Hinshaw, uh, who's apparently a national hero in Canada. And she talks about rational egoists and people only being interested in what's best for them and that they act in defiance of the rules and they're very dangerous. And then she also talks about selfishness can cause social contagion. And, and I was very um, concerned really at the, the definition of altruism because what I know as altruism has been re-engineered and redesigned right before our eyes. So the pandemic and COVID-19 has actually been one of the architects and the driving forces of this. So if we look at the study from King's College London, we can see that the pandemic has actually triggered an increase in altruism across Europe. So it's been a great opportunity for people to be seen to be doing good. But what I do have to say is that altruism is now a movement. This is a global movement. This isn't, um, this is a science. It's a big industry. And I want to introduce you to Effective Altruism UK. Now, effective altruism is very different from the altruism that you and I may may understand. So this is about people wanting to make a difference and people wanting to be seen to be making a difference, people that are suffering injustices. But this isn't just um, effective altruism UK, this is effective altruism globally. So here's another website, effective altruism, about doing good better. How can we do good better? In fact, how can we do good with people that we've never met, that we don't know, um, and how can we be sure that what we are doing is as good as possible? Well, it doesn't. You don't have to go too far to learn that effective altruism, as I say, is a massive subject. So, just WEF again, the World Economic Forum, have plenty of references to effective altruism. Now, this was originally started by a gentleman called Pete Singer, who's actually a moral, uh, he's, he's called a moral philosopher. His um, parents were Australian Jews and they went to Australia uh, from Vienna. Uh, he says that he's an atheist and he gave birth to this movement. Um, and well, let's just meet Pete Singer and listen to what he says. And for those of you who are partially sighted or who are blind, you might want to pay particular attention to the audio on this. So here's Pete Singer talking about effective altruism. If you are going to donate, make sure it does the most good that it can. We all have this attitude to everyday purchases. If you need a new phone and if you came home and showed your phone to a friend and your friend said, how much did you pay for that? And you tell them, they say, what? I could have got that for you for half the price. You'd feel pretty stupid. But strangely, that attitude doesn't apply to charities. So if you go and give your money to a charity, let's say it's a charity that's raising guide dogs for blind people, and you don't do research before you do that. You don't ask, is there some other way I could help blind people that would help more people for less money? If you did ask that, you would find that giving money for guide dogs is not the best value for your money because it costs a lot of money to raise a guide dog. It costs about $40,000 in the US. It's a good thing to do, but you can restore sight in someone who has cataracts and you can prevent people from going blind 
from trachoma, which is a preventable cause of blindness. If you want to do good, do some research, find the most effective charities and give to them. So perhaps Guide Dogs for the Blind might like to do a bit of research into Pete Singer's um, beliefs and maybe any of our viewers might like to write to the CEO of Guide Dogs for the Blind Association. That's tom.wright at guidedogs.org.uk. And maybe you could point him in the direction of Pete Singer's video and ask him what he thinks about charity, obviously not starting at home. Um, now, Pete Singer, although he gave birth to this idea, two um, Oxford academics wrote a book um, and here's a screenshot of the book, William McCaskill, Doing Good Better, which is nicely being endorsed by Bill Gates, um, who says he's a data nerd after his own heart. Now, McCaskill, he also co-founded a non-profit um, organization called Giving What We Can. Now, you might recognize this and know that people have been using websites like this in order to give as much as they possibly can and then for giving what we can to decide what happens to your money, which charities and where your money should go to. And you can see the figures there are, are pretty are pretty stark. And here's the season for giving. And over the past 21 days, 4,114 people have donated over $2 million. So this is a very, very lucrative business. Now, it's not just your money they want, it's your work. So they're going to guide you into a job that they deem to be as good as possible, where you can do as much as you possibly can for other people. Um, and you'll see the figures there, how much funding is committed. This is big business, 46 billion. How quickly have the funds grown? 37% per year since 2015, around $420 million is being donated each year. This is really, really big business. So this is 80,000 um, hours. But how does the UK rank? Well, the UK is an effective altruist. And some of the champions you'll see there, Dominic Cummings, Michael Gove, and also Rory Stewart is one of our um, champions too. And it's interesting there to see that the UK and its partners are prioritizing Rwanda over Nigeria, giving Rwanda $100 for each person and Nigeria just $18 for each person. But what does altruism or effective altruism um, what, does it, what else does it include into? And I'm afraid I have to say we have to look at altruism towards the end of life care and how what a kind of altruistic deed is it to help people to die? And then moving on from that, altruism and physician-assisted death. And, of course, they're extending new laws now to um, change the law on assisted death. And then if we look back at the pandemic, we can see that effective altruism was also the care workers, in this case, care workers in Sheffield, who decided that they would drop everything, leave their families, leave their homes, and they would go and live with their residents in their care home. This is what effective altruism is. How does it affect vaccination rates? Well, the effect of altruism on COVID-19 vaccination rates is, as you can see, favours the individual's awareness for vaccination. So again, it's a very useful tool. But what about double altruism? Well, we can have double altruism if you give blood. So giving blood 
is a really big, effective, altruistic give um, giveaway. And if you just flip on to the next slide there, you can see the top line blood donation is considered as one of its purest forms of altruism. Or is it? Because actually now that's not good enough because how about giving a kidney? That's effective altruism. You should give your kidney. Um, so kidney donation is a reasonable choice for effective altruists and more should consider it. So it gets better because now we're going to have healthy human volunteers volunteering themselves for clinical trials to be injected with all sorts of nasty things, including Zika and COVID-19 and hepatitis in, in, the, in the name of altruism. And New Scientist is also reporting that DNA vaccines will be coded for live viruses will also be tested in human beings, in healthy people. And people are going to be signing up for this because it they are being seen to be good. But if you don't feel you can do anything um, on any one of those fronts, don't worry. What you can do is perhaps move out of your house like Kevin Gulag has. And he's moved out of his one bedroom apartment in Ottawa. He's house sharing with three roommates. He's giving 25% of his annual income. <coughs> Excuse me. So you can pretty much sky's the limit, but it all goes wrong, doesn't it, sometimes? Perhaps we might remember Captain Tom. Do we all remember the scandal of where did your money go? What did happen to your money when you just gave to Captain Tom? So keep an eye out for ineffective altruism because it's a really big topic and it covers every single one of us watching. We are being duped, engineered and made to feel guilty into doing things for people who knows where and who knows with, 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 with what. Thank you, Debbie. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org and uh, you can support us there. That would be very much appreciated. You can pick something up at the UK Column shop, but please do share anything you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org, ukcolumnextracts.co.uk. Uh, yesterday, uh, we showed the uh, interview with John Cook, who's uh, into uh, unadulterated uh, milk and food security and so on, so uh, organic farming and so on. That interview, very interesting. If you haven't seen it, do have a look at that. Um, okay, let's uh, move on then uh, to this, uh, A Doctor's Despair. Debbie. Oh, yes, great Christmas present, a fantastic cause, fantastic content, A Doctor's Despair, an anthology including poems, by Dr. Claire Craig, Matt Letizia and Dr. Malik. Uh, and it's authored by our very own uh, great friend, Dr. David Cartland. Okay, and your blog is now up? My blog is up and I hope you might find it a bit jaw-dropping, but I'll leave it there. Yes, okay, thank you. And uh, well, uh, let's move on then to uh, Chatham House, first of all. Sure. So um, we're going to talk about we're going to talk about COP and we're going to talk about uh, the Sustainable Development Goals. So COP's been going on for the past uh, couple of weeks. We've talked about it quite extensively. Uh, Chatham House have talked about it here, but it, it's over all of the media, all of the big institutions, the Fabian Society. Everyone has something going on as it relates to COP. Well, what happened? Uh, so they've declared the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. They are calling for a tripling of renewable energy capacity. Capacity. They want to double efficiency in energy production. And the bit that they're most excited about 
is the $700 billion loss and damage fund, which is going to be managed by the World Bank, who are going to charge a 24% management fee on those funds, which I think is uh, quite remarkable, actually. Um, uh, one of the people that's been at COP and that I've been following for a little while now is Charlie Nunn, who is the group chief executive at Lloyd's Banking Group, Lloyd's being the biggest uh, retail bank in the UK. They're also a strategic partner of the World Economic Forum, interestingly. Um, Charlie Nunn has been at COP. Uh, he's been talking excitedly about the potential for collaboration between private and public sectors. Uh, as we know, the integration of public and private sector is the dictionary definition of fascism. So that's what Charlie Nunn's been there to talk about. Uh, he, he also, in that, um, that last slide, you could see referenced something called Gold's House. Right. So he's been at Gold's House having these conversations and Gold's House is a global initiative, a diverse community of business and political leaders, activists, NGOs and entrepreneurs focused on the implementation of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. They run events globally in London, in New York, uh, elsewhere. They have a big advisory board with a whole bunch of people from philanthropy, the world of business, big consulting firm, Steve Varley, the former UK chairman of EY is on there, Lily Cole, who is a celeb model type person. There's quite a bit of that floating around this stuff as well. And most importantly, actually, based on what I want to talk about is Matthew Freud, who actually sort of just jump back there. You can see he's the fellow with the haircut a bit like mine and Mike's in the top right hand corner of the screen. That's Matthew Freud. Now he uh, is related to this fellow. Well, he's actually related to Sigmund Freud, but he's also related to Edward Bernays who is a pioneer of PR and propaganda. And Bernays is quoted here as saying, we are dominated by a relatively small number of persons who understand the mental processes and social patterns of the masses. It is they who pull the wires which control the public mind, right? That is PR. And Matthew Freud runs Freud's group. He's the chief executive and the founder of Freud's group. He works with the NHS. He worked uh, on the launch of uh, Terra Carta and Astra Carta. Debbie, you'll be excited about that. I've heard you talk about that a couple of times in the past. Uh, and he also, someone in the chat a moment ago, talked about Bob Geldof. Uh, they, he works with Geldof. He worked on Live 8, uh, and he's heavily involved with, with, with a whole bunch of things, very high-profile stuff, um, uh, very successful business. They've got about 500 people in the UK. It's a, a, a big, well-established communications firm. And as I say, they, they actually, work with, uh, with, with, with Global Goals. It's one of their clients. Uh, if you go to the impact section of the Freud's website, you can go there and have a look at this right now. This is, this is uh, uh, an image that I took yesterday. Um, featured front and center in the section relating to Gold's House. The big global initiative that they're running is a photo of this lady, Jane Goodall. And I'm just going to run a quick video uh, of Jane Goodall speaking at the World Economic Forum so you can get a bit of an understanding of who she is and what she's about. And then finally, we cannot, we cannot hide away from human population growth because, you know, it underlies so many of the other problems. All these things we talk about wouldn't be a problem if there, were, if there was the size of population that there was 500 years ago. So 500 years ago, the global population was about 500 million people. 
So Jane Goodall is talking about a reduction of global population by about, by about, ni- about 90%. And uh, she is being positioned front and centre on the website of the organisation that is responsible for running Gold's House, right? which is one of the main mechanisms by which the Sustainable Development Goals are being promoted and coordinated internationally. right? That, that's quite a remarkable thing to come across. Who else is involved in this? Well, uh, Penny Mordant, uh, uh, good old Penny, the leader of the House of Commons. Uh, this, this is one of my favourite tweets, actually, not just from Penny Mordant, but from anybody. Uh, it's from September 26, 2018, and it's Mordant talking about a fantastic, a great lunch on delivering the global goals, which are the SDGs, with Matthew Rycroft, who you spoke about, Mike, last week, who uh, had a very poor grasp of his numbers in his position at the Home Office on on immigration. Uh, Bill Gates, Melinda Gates, Mike Bloomberg, Stephen Fry. uh, Who else is on there? The Obama Foundation. So I've spoken about the Obama Foundation uh, uh, quite recently. So they're obviously actively involved in the the, uh, SDGs as well. Uh, Richard Curtis, um, the uh, the, 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 the film producer. Don't Emma Freud, of course. Emma Freud, of course. Yeah, she's on there. He's actually married to Richard Curtis and the, the DFID, the Department for International Development, the UK government department. So uh, this has um, infiltrated absolutely everything, right? This is uh, throughout UK government, um, throughout all these international institutions. And uh, I'm just going to wrap up by uh, allowing Penny Morden to um, get, get, give it a little uh, account of herself based on what we've just looked at. 50% of people aged between 25 and 34 believed that regardless of who was in government, there is a single group of people who secretly control events and rule the world together. 50%. Now, being a government minister and having attended Davos once, I am clearly part of this group. And I embraced for a post-speech social media pylon as to why I am an apologist for a global Illuminati held bent on ending humanity as we know it. There you go. There you go. There you go. What more can we say? Well, look, uh, let's uh, let's move on to, to more war uh, and well, the potential of war anyway. Uh, this is a report that came out this morning from the Foreign Affairs Committee of the House of Commons. Uh, and uh, they have titled it, or they've put on their graphic here, at least, A Rock in a Hard Place, Building Critical Mineral Resistance. We have published a report, they said. So let's have a look at the report. This is it. Uh, a rock in a hard place, building critical mineral resistance, uh, resilience. Sorry, uh, The UK government has been behind its allies in acknowledging the aggressive capture of large parts of the critical minerals market by China, but has belatedly produced a critical minerals strategy and refresh. So what kind of minerals are they talking about? Well, there's 18 on the list. Uh, they are uh, antimony, bismuth, cobalt, gallium, graphite, uh, indium, lithium, magnesium, uh, niobium, uh, palladium, pl- platinum, uh, rare earth elements, there's a whole range of things, but they categorize that as one, silicon, uh, tantalum, uh, tellurium, sorry, tin, tungsten, and uh, vanadium. Uh, this is the list that they have. They go on to say, however, the scope of the strategy is too broad to be helpful as a guide to industry, which needs realistic targets and timeframes. Uh, nor, nor does it convey the sense of urgency and need for immediate decisive action. So the question is why? Uh, we urge the government to define the UK's role in the critical minerals value chain and set, a, set out a coherent 
Team UK proposition to explain the UK's offer to global partners. Now, the UK is in a global race for technological advantage, and it's one in which we cannot afford to be left behind. We, it must compete, that's the UK must compete, and compete hard to demonstrate that the challenge of critical minerals is being t taken ser seriously. So, in order to uh, get an idea of uh, what this is about, uh, listen, let's listen to Alicia Kearns uh, speaking this morning. She is the chair of the select committee that released this report. Let's just have a listen to this. And the big problem about this is people assume, and I, I did wrongly slightly, that it's about uh, geology, but actually it's not. It's about geopolitics. And essentially we have a situation where we have a re shared reliance on single source resources around the world, and we are seeing the aggressive capture of those markets by autocratic countries. This is about, it just so happens that a lot of critical minerals happen to be in what are currently autocratic states who don't respect the rules-based system. But it's the processing of critical minerals where we're seeing China going around the world, buying up access to these resources, because if they control the ability to process them, then we see the kind of crisis as we saw in the pandemic with, you know, microchips, you know, Russia cutting off Europe's energy supplies, the world's grain supplies, even the crisis of the Panama Canal. We've seen the danger of relying on single sources. So Russia and China, the big bad boys, because they've been uh, a bit better at dealing with this uh, than, than the rest of the world. Uh, but of course, we've got to remember that we have been in bed with Russia and China for many, many years in terms of our supply chains. Uh, and it's only in recent years when we've decided we need to change tack uh, and perhaps build ourselves a brand new enemy to go to, to, go to war with at some point in the future, uh, that we are changing our story on this. And suddenly these autocratic uh, regimes that we don't like anymore uh, have to be dealt with. This is a pretty dangerous narrative that's being built here. Uh, it was built, it was began being built with the Integrity Initiative campaign uh, funded by the Foreign Office. Uh, and uh, of course, the various reports that have come out from Parliament in more recent years on Russia and on China. Uh, and we are going to go to war with these countries uh, on a much more broad basis rather than the proxy war that we have in Ukraine at the moment. Uh, and uh, this, this is all building the narrative for that uh, because we have to deal with this uh, very soon, according to the likes of Alicia Cairns. It's a pretty dangerous. Uh, development and we need to keep an eye on it. Um, okay, uh, let's move on then. Uh, and uh, Debbie, what have you got for us? Well, what I've got is um, we've always been saying, haven't we, that doctors uh, that have been complicit during this whole last three years are the turkeys at Christmas. And who's going to need a doctor when you can visit a care pod? So for $99 a month and with access on your smartphone, you'll be able to have your own consultation in a care pod, which are going to be deployed in malls, gyms and offices. First of all, uh, in San Francisco Bay Area, New York, Chicago and Philadelphia. But um, they're going to be coming to your high street uh, pretty soon. But let's have a, a short video look and see what's coming to your high street very soon. This is not a doctor's office. It's forward the world's first AI doctor's office. It all starts with the CarePod, an entirely new approach to healthcare with prevention at its core. With health apps in every category to choose from, we're here to treat the issues of today and prevent the issues of tomorrow. We'll start by establishing a baseline of your health, diving deep into all aspects of your health, past health history, current health state, future wellness goals, body scan, Biometric monitoring, blood testing, genetics, and
and more. After establishing a baseline of your health, you're able to personalize your care with health apps curated for you. You and your care team will be equipped to make the right decisions for your long-term health or our mental health app to monitor anxiety and depression with ongoing guidance and support. Everyday care, like a routine blood draw, COVID-19 testing, or kidney and liver health. It's about continuous, comprehensive care that addresses your health concerns today and prevents those of tomorrow. So there you go. That'll make you a proper effective altruist because you won't need to visit uh, the NHS, will you? Because you can have all your needs. And it's got little secret drawers, that little pod. So you can have all sorts of tests and, and swabs and blood takes and everything. But um, the UKHSA are warning that in a few years time, because of climate change, um, we could end up with dengue fever in England. So this is the warning. And the standard goes on in the article, actually, very helpfully to warn us of what else is coming up that we can expect. So we can expect danger of extreme heat. We'll see an extreme flooding, extreme flooding events. We're going to see mental health deteriorate. We're going to see UK uh, climate related deaths up by 100% in the 2030s. We're going to see food prices shooting through the roof, wildfires, toxic smokes. And of course, the elderly and children are going to be most at risk. Now, that's what we've got to look forward to. However, in Italy, the Italian health minister, uh, Roberto Speranza, is now under investigation for murder for concealing COVID vaccine deaths. So this is a story, this has actually made mainstream news, and that's the front cover of uh, La Verita there. So keep an eye on that story. Um, jumping on to the new scientist, you'll be um, really relieved to know that you can now have a vaccine via ultrasound. And the way that this is going to work is that they're going to mix vaccine molecules with protein molecules, and then they're going to put it in a liquid, and then the liquid goes on your body and they expose it to ultrasound. So now you can be vaccinated by, literally via ultrasound. Just want to highlight uh, the wonderful Hedley Reese's substack and his latest substack says the MHRA are resuming inspections of SARS-CoV-2 injection manufacturers three years too late. But actually what they're saying, and he, he's written um, a very, very good article with the email that he's received to say that they'll probably be doing remote inspections, so it probably won't count for very much. And actually, breaking news, two hours ago, the MHRA put up their board meeting on YouTube. It only had 35 views when I went to look at it, so please click in, let them know that you're watching them. Um, and then going on to the mail, I'm afraid the NHS aren't faring very well, and the UK doesn't make the top 20 for safest care. So we've got Norway's at the top. Uh, we're 21st out of 38 countries that were surveyed and Mexico came last. Um, so we're not doing very well. And then finally, disabled people are going to have to uh, work from home uh, to do their duty or else they could face losing benefits. So all of these stories to keep a very close eye on. Thank you, Debbie. And uh, uh, just want to very quickly mention the Security Council once again. We were talking about this on Monday, uh, and uh, uh, this was the vote uh, over Gaza and so on. Uh, the UK government, I was making the point that uh, the UK government has been absolutely behind Security Council reform for many, many years. And the, the fact that the US used their veto against the, peace, uh, the ceasefire call uh, in the Security Council was a pretty cynical 
uh, effort to, to partly at least uh, to, to get that uh, reform done. So this is what James Karaoke uh, was saying in the uh, UN yesterday. The UK believes the council must be reformed as a security council. We support permanent African representation and addition of new permanent seats for Brazil, Germany, India and Japan. And of course, they'll choose the countries very well, uh, countries that will support uh, perhaps Western uh, narratives and so on. Turning to the veto, and this is the biggest prob problem, this is a heavy responsibility to be used in the interest of securing the peace and security that people around the world seek. And the UN was established to provide. The United Kingdom has not used our veto since 1989. We remain committed never to vote against a credible draft resolution on preventing or ending a mass atrocity. No, will they get the United States to do that instead? Uh, because uh, And so on. But uh, we encourage all member states, he said, including other permanent members of the council to support this initiative for reform. But we've got to remember, again, I'll just make this point. In recent years, when Russia and China have used their veto, they've used it to prevent war. This is wars, regime change wars and other wars that the West, the US and the UK in particular have been uh, pushing very hard to, to, uh, to create. Uh, on the other hand, the United States has used its veto to prevent peace. Uh, and that is the key point here. Now let's, uh, Ben, move on to Israel. Yeah, absolutely. So I just thought it was uh, interesting to note that uh, Hanukkah was celebrated for the first time uh, in a thousand years in Westminster Hall uh, this week. Uh, it was attended, as you can see here, by Keir Starmer and uh, James Cleverly, amongst others. Um, so this is obviously a big endorsement of uh, Israel and the Jewish people by the British Parliament. Uh, I was also fascinated to, to find out that the Israeli ambassador to the UK is called Zippy. Uh, I wonder if that makes James cleverly bungle. Um, let's have a little listen to what Zippy has to say and see what she's about. Two-state solution? What is there did? still a chance for a two-state solution? I think it's about time for the world to realise the Oslo paradigm failed on the 7th but, of October and we need to build a new one. And in but, order to build a new one... does that new one include the Palestinians living in a state of their own. Does, think, is that what it includes? I think the biggest question is, what type of Palestinians are on the other side? This is what Israel no, realised they have a state, The answer is absolutely no, and I'll tell you why. Well, then because how can there the be moment, peace? In, no, how can I'll there be peace you, in The reason there is no peace Israel. is because the Palestinians... How could, without offering Mark, a state to Palestine, how Mark, can there be peace in Israel? Israel knows today, and the world should know now, the reason the Oslo Accords failed is because the Palestinians never wanted to have a state next to Israel. They want to have a state from the river to the sea. So the two-state solution is dead. Why are you obsessed with a formula that never worked, that created this radical people in the other side? Why are you obsessed with that? So there was quite a bit of pushback to that uh, interview. And, uh, but James, James cleverly said, uh, you shouldn't judge the Israeli ambassador from one interview. Right. Okay. Yeah. You shouldn't judge her on what she says in public yes. using her own words. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that, 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 yeah. Okay. That, 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 that's a fascinating <laughs> pushback from Cleverly. Um, no surprise, though. Um, so, uh, um, moving on, uh, Debbie, you just actually uh, showed a fan fascinating little video there of, of an AI doctor's surgery. I think this AI stuff, well, as we know, it's going to be popping up absolutely everywhere. That looks terrifying what they were proposing almost as terrifying as this development which is that there is a startup that um, has just launched in the past well, actually this this article is a little bit older than i've realized this is from july but it's just really uh, become more prominent uh, on linkedin certainly over the past week or so people are starting to talk about it more um, there is a startup 
called Channel One News that wants to create an AI-generated CNN. Right? Imagine how awful that might be. Well, let's listen to them talking about it, and you can see. Channel One, a new way of consuming, reporting, and thinking about the news powered by artificial intelligence. Today, you'll witness AI-generated stories and headlines, captivating visuals and data-driven insights. From global news to finance to entertainment, we'll show you how technology enables us to bring you a global perspective 24-7, right from the heart of our AI-native newsroom. All presented by our team of AI-generated reporters. Maybe you hear the words artificial intelligence and you're immediately skeptical or concerned about technology gone crazy. But everything you'll see on Channel One relies on trusted sources and fact-checking and uses AI to give you news the way you want it, personalized, localized, and distilled. Through it all, our mission is to provide you with accurate, unbiased, and trustworthy news. Technology may be the tool, but journalism's core values of integrity and accountability are at the heart of everything we do. Accurate, unbiased, trustworthy, fact-checked, developed by an algorithm. I mean, that is, that is a war on truth what right go, there. What could go wrong? Okay. What could possibly go wrong? I mean, they actually talk about creating, like filling in the gaps. If there's incomplete video content, then we will use AI to fill in the content mm. so that you get a more complete understanding of what actually happened based on what we decide. All those presenters, by the way, they're, they're AI generated, I think, in that film. Right. So the technology is already there and the potential for abuse we talked about over the past, um, past few weeks is, is absolutely huge. Yeah, it does. So, for sure. Okay, let's uh, bring this on screen now. This is um, uh, Fasu UK talking about Soldier F. Soldier F is a former British soldier who is now going to stand trial for two alleged murders and five alleged attempted murders on Bloody Sunday in uh, Londonderry in Northern Ireland. Uh, among the charges, he's accused of murdering William McKinney and James Ray. Uh, and this all came about as a hearing that was held in Derry yesterday. Uh, to decide what uh, whether this case was going to proceed. Now, of course, this isn't the first such case. Uh, this has been an ongoing campaign by the uh, authorities in Northern Ireland. Uh, Dennis Hutchings, of course, who we worked with in the past, uh, was the last soldier to be taken to Belfast for a murder trial. And uh, unfortunately, he passed away during that murder trial uh, because he was extremely ill with stage four cancer at the time, but they decided to continue and to pursue him. Uh, they effectively handed him to his death. Uh, so who is behind this? Well, it's the Legacy Investigation Branch at the Police Service of Northern Ireland uh, that are actually doing this at the moment. And of course, the uh, Sinn Féin is a major part of this as well. But why is this happening? Well, this is happening because of uh, one particular aspect of the uh, Good Friday Agreement. Uh, and the man behind that, of course, is Tony Blair, because there were letters sent, uh, letters of amnesty sent to all the Irish Republican Army terrorists who uh, were also potentially going to be prosecuted for murder following the post-peace process, but those letters gave amnesty and they were uh, therefore not pursued. Uh, Tony Blair said, I'm not going to apologise for sending those letters to those who should have received those letters, uh, because without having done that, we would not have a Northern Ireland peace process. But in the meantime, uh, people on the British side uh, continue to be hounded uh, even all these years later. 
Um, so if you want to know a little bit more about this, uh, have a look at uh, this episode. Uh, if you look on the UK column for the David Ellis Report at Lawfare, uh, this is uh, David Ellis speaking to Dennis Hutchings uh, while he was obviously um, prior to the uh, prosecution against him. Uh, and uh, so there's a lot more background to be had there. But uh, this is something which isn't really getting a massive amount of mainstream media attention and should be because this continues to be a massive miscarriage of justice. I'm not saying that uh, if there was a murder done that people shouldn't be prosecuted for it, but if you're going to give one side of a conflict uh, a an amnesty on the basis of that that's how you're going to do a peace deal and the other side doesn't get the amnesty, then that's not really much of a peace deal. It's got to be applied equally on both sides. Uh, that's That would be the argument there uh, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, let's move on. Uh, Debbie, uh, <laughs> What's the latest on King Charles? Okay, so I'm, I'm not going to speak very much about this next little segment because we're going to be talking a lot more about it in extra. And trust me, I have got a lot more to reveal about this. But for those of you that may not have remembered or have recalled or even seen, um, back in 2002, the then Prince Charles was presented with a statue. Now, I caught up with this story in The Guardian, but there's also a nice little article in Hello that you might want to check out. So this is Charles, the then Prince Charles Winged, and he is called, this statue is called the Saviour of the World. Now, this does represent Prince Charles. Uh, Prince Charles's permission was sought and he gave it and he said he was very touched and very pleased. Um, with the result. I also caught up with this article in The Independent, uh, and many of you might want to go and read it in depth, but I'm sure some of you may, may be thinking it. Is Prince Charles God, is he the devil? For a mild-mannered, well-bred sexagenarian, he inspires extreme reactions. And I'm sure that this statue has inspired um, a lot of extreme reactions. But let's just go and have another look at the statue itself. And there aren't many pictures of the full statue online. So you do have to hunt for them a little bit. So you can see that it's a very, uh, well, he's got a lot of hair, Prince Charles. And it's a very muscly figure of, uh, of him in a loincloth. Um, and he's standing on heads. And one of the heads is drinking wine. And you can probably see across there. And there is a, an engraving on the bottom that says saviour of the world. Now, there is a life size model of this that has been erected in um, a place called Palmas, which is the capital of Tocartins, which is in the Brazilian rainforest. And like I say, there's much more to say about this. And we'll talk more about it in extra. OK, thank you, Debbie. Now, um Everybody will remember uh, this from the World Economic Forum. This was, of course, uh, the World Economic Forum's eight predictions for the world in 2030. And this is prediction number one. You will own nothing and you'll be happy. Uh, now, a part of an aspect of this is the uh, right to repair issue. Uh, and there is, in fact, an entire movement uh, to deal with this, uh, to campaign for the right to repair various things. Now, most people will know this because um, of the story of how farmers won the right to repair John Deere tractors. And the idea was, of course, you spend your 300, 400,000 pounds, whatever it is, on a John Deere tractor. And the question then is whether you own it or not. Uh, and John Deere saying, well, no, you don't own it because in the sense that we 
uh, own the software. We have the copyright on the software that runs the tractor. And therefore, you can't, for example, take it to your local tractor repair shop and get it dealt with there. Uh, you can only uh, uh, get this repaired by us. We've seen other examples of this. For example, when Amazon decided that it was going to remove uh, 1984 on Animal Farm from people's Amazon Kindles. These were books that they had bought, uh, so they thought they owned them. But in fact, Amazon decided, uh, no, we'll take those away from you again. And there was a lawsuit uh, over that. Uh, well, the latest now is uh, trains in Poland. Um, so uh, have a look at this image. Uh, this is one of uh, the, the hackers uh, that was brought in to assist with this problem. Uh, and we'll talk about, we'll explain that in a second. Uh, but basically, uh, a, a regional uh, train company in Wrocław in the southwest of Poland uh, just took their trains into uh, a, a third-party company for maintenance and repair and discovered after the third-party company have got their hands on them that the trains would no longer switch on and drive. Um, so this was uh, covered in the Polish media. Uh, let's have a look at that and we'll just do a quick translation of one of the paragraphs. Uh, so this says, as we reported last week, uh, the five-member traction teams of, this is a, a, an, an automated translation, so apologies for that. Uh, they exhibited a very unusual glitch after the repair of the trains. Uh, it was not possible to restart the trains. The repair was carried out by SPS, uh, which won the tender for maintenance of these trains at the lowest price. Uh, Newvag, new the uh, manufacturer, was also attempting to get the contract for the maintenance of the trains, but didn't win because they were too expensive and so on. Uh, so uh, let's come back to the hackers, because when the trains could not be uh, restarted, the train company invited uh, three so-called white hat hackers to come in and have a look at the, co the uh, code that was running these trains and see whether there's anything that could be done about it. Uh, and this is uh, uh, what they were uh, putting out on uh, uh, on social media. Uh, so this is from one of the hackers. I can finally re reveal some research I've been involved with over the past year or so. Uh, we've reverse engineered the code of the UAG trains. Uh, these trains were locking up for arbitrary reasons after being serviced at third-party workshops. The manufacturer argued that this was because of malpractice by these workshops and that they should be serviced by, by the manufacturer instead of by third parties. Uh, we found that the code actually contained logic that would lock up the train uh, with error codes after some time, uh, or if the train wasn't running for a given time, uh, one version of the controller actually contained GPS coordinates to, conti to uh, contain this be behavior to third-party workshops. So in other words, they were actually identifying whether the train had been taken to a third-party maintenance workshop, and then they were being uh, switched off. So it was also possible to unlock the trains by pressing a key combination in the cabin control. So they, they looked at the source code uh, and they discovered uh, a, a a code that could be typed into the panel in the train itself, which would override this, this lockup. Uh, and they then went on to say that the key unlock was deleted uh, in newer software versions, but the lock logic remained. Uh, and uh, so that was the unlock key, sorry. After certain updates by UVAG, uh, the cabin controls would also display scary messages about copyright violations and so on. So this is the type of thing that's been going on. Now, the train company, that's the, the manufacturer themselves, put out a statement uh, so we'll do a quick translation of this as well. Uh, they maintain that their software is clean, that they have not, have never, and never will install any software on the trains, uh, which would lead to intentional failure. Uh, this is a slander from our competition, which runs an illegal black PR campaign against us. This is the, what they are determined to say. Uh, but uh, the uh, former Minister of Digital Affairs, uh, former in the sense of last week, because the Polish government has just got a new uh, uh, 
Polish, Poland has just got a new government, rather. Uh, he had this to say, so he tweeted this out. Uh, the president of NUAG contacted me. He claims that NUAG fell victim to cyber criminals and it was not an intentional action by the company. The analysis I saw, that's the minister saw, indicated something else. But for the sake of clarity, I will write about everything. So it remains to be seen uh, what the outcome of this is going to be. It's absolutely clear that NUAG is seriously considering taking legal action against the three hackers that were employed to look at the source code. Uh, but this is just another example of uh, a big corporation attempting to uh, to require its customer to do certain things uh, and min keep feeding it money. Uh, and uh, of course, this is, goes beyond just uh, trains and tractors. It goes to every every item that we own, including mobile phones and and whether we're allowed to change batteries and, and so on. So, so this is something that affects <coughs> affects us all, and it is without question. Uh, uh, an, uh, an ex expression of the idea that we will own nothing and be happy. So, um, okay, let's move on then uh, to Debbie. And, uh, well, Doctor Who, Debbie? Yeah, and I feel I need to warn people that the content that they're going to see, it's only a little tiny extract. We're going to show the whole video in extra, but it, you might find it distressing. And you will be able to make an informed adult decision if on Christmas Day, you watch Doctor Who when you're around young people or children because the BBC have a very special gift for you for, for Christmas when Christians all around the world will be celebrating the birth of Christ. The BBC have this gift for you via Doctor Who, the church on Ruby Road, the Goblin Song. No winter baby, we will talk. We'll show you the rest of that video in extra and I'm sure we'll have some discussion around it. Thank you, Debbie. Uh, and uh, well, we just want to end by mentioning that uh, yesterday was uh, the 15th anniversary of um, George W. Bush being on the receiving end of some shoes. Let's just remind ourselves uh, what that looked like. Now, that was uh, George W. Bush on the receiving end of some shoes thrown at him by a journalist uh, who was uh, naturally upset with him over the body count uh, for the Iraq war. Um, I suspect we need to see a bit more of that from some more mainstream journalists uh, if they have the guts. Uh, maybe that's an extremist view, but uh, it's certainly mine. Um, okay, let's leave it there for now. We will be back in a few minutes with some extra. So thank you very much uh, to Debbie and Ben and everybody that's watching. If you're not a UK Column member and not joining us for extra, have a great weekend. We will be back at the same time, 1 p.m. on Monday. See you then. Bye-bye.